there. You're listening to The Linecast. I'm your host, Jonathan Platt. This week, my guest is Dr. Peter Hotez. Now, you've probably seen Dr. Hotez on the news being interviewed, cited, or sometimes skewered. He's made a name for himself in the fight against anti-science and was a constant presence as a primetime source during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Hotez is the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and professor of pediatrics and molecular biology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. He's also a university professor of Baylor University, as if he didn't have enough going on. I've interviewed Dr. Hodes before, specifically last year, as we were all navigating a season of change during the pandemic. He's also a part of a team we featured in a previous article of scientists who had been nominated for a Nobel Prize, uh, including his Baylor colleague, Dr. Maria Elena Botazzi. Together, their team created the Corbivax vaccine to combat the COVID-19 virus. This vaccine is different from the ones that you and I could get because it's not patented and therefore can be deployed for only a nominal fee, making it much easier to reach people in lower income parts of the world. Uh, as a fun fact, uh, it also received a million dollar donation from Tito's Vodka. So uh, make sure to toast Dr. Hotez the next time you're enjoying a martini. Uh, this time, Dr. Hotez and I spoke about his latest book, The Dangerous Rise of Anti-Science. I really enjoyed reading it, both from a scientific side, which Dr. Hotez makes really easy to understand for even a dummy like me, uh, and also from a historical side, where he goes into uh, the history of authoritarianism. Uh, I I really hope you'll pick up a copy. Uh, I also hope that you'll enjoy this interview. So here it is, my conversation with Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez, where does this interview find you? Well, in terms of scientifically, we've gotten, you know, two COVID vaccine technologies out to 100 million doses administered. That's exciting. Uh, We are now looking to develop the XBB booster or annual immunization version, a low cost version of that in collaboration with with our uh, colleagues in low and middle income countries. So hoping that might roll out, you know, as we get to the new year. So we're excited about that. And then and now continuing the struggle and fight against rising anti-science is always is is always a challenge. And and now with the new book, I, yeah. I think I've made an important statement. I hope it's received well. Yeah. Yeah. So since we last spoke, I saw something pretty shocking. I was poking around on Twitter one day and I saw your face in a big floppy kind of like work hat out in your yard. And it turned out it was a video of somebody coming up to you uh, at your house and verbally assaulting you. Luckily, there was no physical. Yeah, and assault. I was looking my best too, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. I, I enjoyed. It. You were wearing. Were you wearing an Astro shirt? What was it? I was. Uh, I think it was a Texan shirt. At least, okay, I, at shirt. least I showed loyalty to the team. Yeah. It was a hot day, and it was Father's Day too. So you know, just I remember these, that. these stalkers just you know. Yeah. Are... Well, I I won't hold the Texans shirt against you, but for those who don't know, could you kind of like quickly explain what led to the interaction, what it was like, and then specifically, why do you think incident of doxing like this are happening to to people who speak out? Well, increasingly, the anti-vaccine movement's taken on a, a political tone, and unfortunately, you know, it's gone from false accusations about vaccines causing autism to now it's been adopted by extreme elements of, of the far right, and their leaders issue dog whistles. So this happened in 2021 with Laura Ingram, Governor DeSantis, mocking me for 
predicting the Delta wave was going to hit Florida. And of course it slammed Florida two weeks later or, or when on the day that I was co-nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize with Mary Elena, with Dr. Patazzi, that evening, Tucker Carlson felt he had to go on a big rant and call me, I don't know, call me a charlatan or this, this, this kind of stuff. And that's all, that's considered a dog whistle. And then, mm-hmm. Um, you know, hundreds of people then launch online attacks, either yeah. on Twitter, by email, or in some cases, physical stalking. This happened uh, yet again earlier uh, this summer, late in the spring, when Elon Musk and Joe Rogan issued a call for me to debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who had gone up against in the past. And uh, I thought that would be unproductive and, and, and send the wrong message of how we do science. Science is not won by debate. It's done through submission of scientific papers and 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 major revisions and and scientific meetings and and so by my ref- and and I think they wanted a prominent U.S. scientist to sort of prop Robert F. Kennedy Jr. up. So by debating him, it would be seen as a way of increasing his stature. So when I refused, I kind of popped their bubble and they got mad and and lots of people and they got they stirred up a lot of anger and, and people believe that stuff. And then in some cases, people act out with real physical uh, costing or. Or in this case, this individual and a, and a colleague of his came came to my home. Yeah. In, in what was what was it like to be at your house? I mean, was your family inside? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this this has happened before. Usually, though, when people stalk me, they stalk me at um, when I go give a, a visiting lecture somewhere. They lay in wait in the audience and they'll disrupt. It's a whole yeah, other step but, to go to somebody's house. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the fact that. You know, it's also a vulnerable feeling to know that so many people who are against me know where I live and yeah. and, and that sort of thing. So it's it's but, you know, this is the, the new wave of anti-vaccine aggression. And, and uh, yeah, um, it, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Spe- speaking speaking of that, your bibliographic excuse me, your bibliographic catalog includes forgotten people, forgotten diseases, blue marble health, an innovative plan to fight diseases of the poor amid wealth. Vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. My journey as a vaccine scientist, pediatrician, and autism dad, preventing the next pandemic, vaccine diplomacy in a time of anti-science, and your latest, the deadly rise of anti-science, a scientist's warning. I'm sensing a theme here, kind of picking up on something. What got you so interested in the topic of combating, specifically through manuscripts, the work of anti-science advocates? Well, you know, I sort of live this dual life as a working scientist and keeping up with the grants and the papers and the lab meetings like like we all do, but mm-hmm. like that academic scientists do. And in our case, we're, we're a, a vaccine laboratory. We're developing new vaccines for poverty-related diseases and coronaviruses. But then, you know, wherever I've perceived vacuums that there's important issues related to my work that nobody's speaking out. On, on behalf of, and I see this vacuum, I'll then step in. And that's forgotten people, forgotten diseases was describing this whole landscape of the neglected tropical diseases. And this happened after the Millennium Development Goals in 2000, when diseases that I was interested in studying, such as hookworm infection, schistosomiasis, diseases affecting a billion people in poor countries, weren't mentioned in any of the global health policy documents. So I felt it was important to speak out about neglected tropical diseases. Then I got involved doing this again as a vaccine scientist, and there were false assertions that vaccines cause autism. So I 
wrote a book explaining why vaccines do not cause Rachel's autism or, or and blue marble health had to do with the fact that people didn't realize that there was a hidden burden of poverty related neglected diseases in the Southern part of the United States. So I wrote that and this latest describes how 200,000 Americans needlessly lost their lives because they refused a COVID vaccine, including 40,000 in Texas. And, yeah. and, and the point of the um, key point of the book is, you know, people are sort of tossing it off as quote misinformation or infodemic, like it's just some random junk on the internet, but that's not what it is. It's targeted and it's deliberate and it's politically organized. And, and I felt that needed to be said. And, and it's how these people became victims from this organized ecosystem because people don't know that. And, and how it's also not only targeting targeting the science, but also the scientists and being portraying scientists as enemies of the state, hence yes. the, the physical stalking. So that had to be reported, I felt, and and that was the rationale for writing this latest book. Yeah. If 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 you were just to see a cursory collection of some of your statements across Twitter or on news interviews, it could definitely seem like you have a very pessimistic view of the current world. But as I read your latest book, I actually saw a tremendous amount of optimism in your words. What keeps you optimistic in spite of the strong headwinds against you and against well, scientists and against academics? Well, it's both. I mean, it does tell a pretty dark chapter yeah. in, in our time right now in the United States. You know, when I became a scientist, you know, as an MD, PhD student in New York in the 1940s, you know, that I mean, in, in 40 years ago in the 1980s, this was, you know, considered something noble. And I made vaccines because I saw this was the highest science in the pursuit of humanitarian goals. It was the highest pursuit one could imagine. And and I still feel that. And and to see this flipped on its side and and people to say vaccines are dangerous and and anything other than the life-saving humanitarian interventions that they are really troubled me and 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 to see how it got so organized and people for at first monetizing the internet and creating a whole industry out of disparaging vaccines and vaccine scientists that was disturbing and now the fact that it's been adopted at some of the highest levels of the U.S. government, members of Congress, the House Freedom Caucus, and certain senators, and then amplified every night on Fox News, uh, as documented by two sources that I identify. That was really troubling, and because so many Americans accepted it and paid for it with their lives. Um, yeah. So this was a predatory movement, and I felt I had to talk about it. So on the one hand, I talk about the promise of vaccines and our vaccines and others and how, you know, mRNA vaccines saved 3 million American lives during this pandemic in the U.S. According to my colleague, Allison Galvani at Yale, we've made vaccines that reached 100 million doses. That's a pretty amazing feat, right? But And so tempering, though, that optimism with the recognition that there is this dark force that's working to undermine it, and, and it's very powerful. And it has become a major lethal societal force. What was in this book? What do you think the most challenging chapter to write was? Well, I think one of just well, there are a couple. One yeah. was how the fact that science, the attacks on science, are now spilling over to attack on scientists and portraying us as enemies of the state, and talking about the fact that 
we've seen this with other authoritarian regimes. This is what mm-hmm. Stalin, you know, did in 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 Stalinist Russia in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. They he threw the Mendelian geneticist Vavilov into the gulag in order to favor the the phony Lamarckian theories of Lysenko, and it destroyed the Russian wheat crop, wheat crop and two million, two to three million pe- Soviet peasants died. That's how terrible this could become, and we're repeating that. I think the other piece, though, that's also very hard to discuss, and I devote a chapter to it, is the fact that the expectation among scientists or, or physician scientists is that we're politically neutral, mm. that we don't talk about inconvenient things like Republicans and Democrats and liberals or conservatives. And, and I don't like talking about it. I really don't care about a person's uh, conservative views, even extreme views, but somehow we have to uncouple the anti-science from it. And so how we have that, how you thread that needle and have that discussion is is problematic because it's uncomfortable to talk about. People don't expect scientists to go into the political realm. But at the end of the day, I, I just say I haven't found a way to talk about it other than to talk about it. So I talked about it or I wrote about it. And and it was important to say, even though it takes you to an uncomfortable place. Yeah. In the book, you write that this is not the beginning of the end, but instead the end of the beginning. And one example that you give about that is the rise of artificial intelligence. How does this innovation threaten us when it comes to science or or more accurately, like the the, the use by anti-science advocates? Well, I worry this this attack on science and scientists will first of all, spill over into other areas. You're already seeing a more generalized attack on virologists making phony claims that the virologists created the COVID virus, which I think has been pretty well debunked and, or other, other aspects of biomedicine. And then, you know, there is a potential role for AI in this. My colleague, Renee Duresta, who's at the Stanford Internet Observatory has, you know, pointed out the potential for AI generating various documents, whether it's blogs or tweets or and and that is really scary because, you know, then I think the title of her article was Misinformation Can Become Soon Become Infinite. And Yes, in the Atlantic. We're, 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 we're already outgunned by the anti vaccine disinformation and misinformation. And that they have the to now know could make a quantum leap to something even worse is really concerning. So we've got to find a way to counteract that. And and that's where the book, you know, by my own admission, stumbles a bit because this has become a political enterprise. And I think the health sector or the scientific sector doesn't exactly know what to do. And you and you see that among my colleagues. You know, I talk about the Surgeon General, U.S. Surgeon General, who I'm very fond of is excellent Surgeon General, Harvard, Yale trained internist. You know, he won't talk like I'm talking and won't talk about the role of, you know, Fox News or the House Freedom Caucus. So he skirts around the edges and talks about switching up computer algorithms with the social media heads. And and sure, that's that's important too, but it doesn't get to the source of this or, or yeah. you know, trying to increase, expand our volume of uh, quality data about vaccines and other interventions. Sure, that's important as well but it doesn't get to the source of it. And and the book says we need to think about how we bring in experts from these fields, in the case of the Biden administration, tapping into experts from Homeland Security or the Commerce Department, Justice Department, even State Department, because you have foreign actors like um, Putin and Russia. In their case, they're doing something a little different. They're flooding our internet with both 
anti-vaccine bots and pro-vaccine bots because in their, this case they they seek certain wedge issues that are that would destabilize our democracies and so they'll 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 play both sides you know with regards to the 2020 election because it's divisive it creates turmoil or chaos and they're doing that with vaccines vaccines have become such a, a, a hot button issue that they're doing this with vaccines now and so how do we bring in state department uh, over that and so i think that's and then at the same time how do we protect the scientists because you know we're yes. under threat and often we don't get the and I think sometimes the college presidents don't know what to do or the, the or the scientific societies or even the National Academies of Science and Medicine. You know, should we be creating new infrastructure, new organizations to protect scientists? And it uh, poses it, that question as well. Yes, that was actually my next question was uh, the, the book comes to a conclusion where in, in the final chapter, you, be, you mention the attacks on academic freedom with anti-science advocates targeting the administration and the institutions. Like you mentioned, college presidents and college administrators, where some outspoken scientists or even just mild-mannered scientists whose work and findings challenge an anti-science worldview. Uh, you suggest the organizing of a Southern Poverty Law Center-like program to combat this. How would an organization like that function? Function. So I'm a great admirer of the Southern Poverty Law Center and their track record of civil rights and they're based in Montgomery, Alabama, and and they provide legal defense for those under threat, you know, and should the scientists, you know, benefit from something like that. The science, not, not the Southern Poverty Law Center per se, but an, sure. an organization with a similar remit for scientists. The climate scientists have done this. They've created a climate science defense fund. Should we be doing something along those lines? And so I'm actively exploring that now with colleagues and as, as a possibility. Your final sentence in the book is a call to regroup and act. I, I think the way that I read it, you were specifically speaking to your colleagues within the, the science and the academic worlds, but how can non-scientists participate in that regrouping and acting? Well, you know, I I think, you know, as Martin Luther King says, not not that I'm comparing myself with Martin Luther King, you know, he's he used to say it's not the words of the enemies, it's the silence of the friends. That's mm. that's the toughest part. And our friends are too silent, both in the scientific societies and in in the leaders of our universities. And and I think we need we need their support. There's got to be greater support for the scientists on uh, on this and. And exactly how that, the specifics of it, I think there's probably lot, lots of ways to consider doing that. But at least, speak, you know, knowing that we're not alone, I think, is going to be very important. I mean, certainly, I do. My public engagement has a lot of different forms, including writing books and opinion pieces, and and doing interviews like this on podcasts, also the cable news channels, and I'm also on social media. I find social media the least rewarding because that's where the it's so so aggressive, but you know it it is heartening to see colleagues both in the scientific world and non scientific world rise up to support me or, or 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 other colleagues. I think that means a lot. Yeah, kind of switching gears. Other than your own books, which ones have you recommended the most, or which book have you given away the most often? Oh well, you know I I've well one I'm a big fan of biographies mm -hmm. um, and biographies of people. So did you read the Elon Musk biography yet? No, I have not read Elon Musk biography, but but people I admire and they tend to be mm -hmm. uh, many of them are scientists or who are, have helped science and often have statesmen like 
roles and involved in international diplomacy as well. So Abi Eben, you know, Abi Eben's biography, Chaim Weitzman's biography. These are these these are two of the important. Jonas Salk's by I've read several biographies of uh, Jonas Salk, and 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 those those have a lot of meaning also. And now, because of I've had to take a crash course in political science to understand the role of authoritarian regimes in targeting science and scientists. I've read, I can't say I've read the whole book, but, you know, because it's so dense, but but passages, lots of passages, Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, because you see the similarities there, or the writings of Anne Applebaum or Ruth Ben-Getz, Strongmen. You know, these these have been very helpful in helping me put a fair bit of this into context. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you're reading, watching, or enjoying right now? Right now, I've been reading, I've gotten very, you know, I've always been interested because we have a school of tropical medicine here and finding tropical diseases in the U.S., the the history of tropical diseases in this country. And mm-hmm. so um, two books on the devastation that yellow fever exacted on, on the southern U.S. between 1820 and, and 1905. So cities such as New Orleans or Charleston or Memphis or Galveston were devastated by yellow fever. So I've been doing some writings on whether yellow fever can can come back soon. Oh, good night. Um, <laughs> on a lighter subject, uh, when you when you close the laptop and hang out with family or wind down for the night, are you watching anything on Netflix or Max or whatever? Well, we can't. We canceled our cable news subscription because it got too expensive. So <laughs> you know, I used to you know turn on CNN or MSNBC at, yeah. at night. Now I can still get MSNBC, but it's been a little tougher, challenging finding CNN. You know, people always ask me what my hobbies are and, and actually writing is a, is a, oh. is a big hobby of mine. So I love, I, you know, if I get, I'd love to get some writing in dur- during my day. And mm-hmm. although at the end of the day, sometimes I'm, I'm pretty tired. So reading is, is something that's extremely important. I yeah. do like all the Houston teams, so watching the Astros when I can, or the or the Texans Again, or the Rockets I, I, is always. I won't and, of, and of course, and of course, Baylor Baylor University football on a Saturday, right? Yeah, so. indeed, indeed. Speaking of writing, do you have the next book kind of planned out? Is it going to be in the same vein, or is it going to be a novel about somebody who moves to a, a, a sea coast land and doesn't have access to the internet? <laughs> No, no, I'm that. That's a good fantasy too. I'm kicking around a bunch of ideas. Uh, you know, looking at the Gulf Coast through the lens of a disease endemic area. You mm. know, I've written about pieces of that, but telling why Texas and the Gulf Coast is such a vulnerable area. Yeah, that, that's one area I'm interested in. You know, during the book on the anti-science, because I'm Jewish, I'm getting targeted a lot for the anti-Semitism, and so I got curious about. You know, are there links between anti-science and anti-Semitism? And there's a rich history about it. So I've written a paper, two papers on it. And, you know, could that be a book? Uh, uh, I don't know. Just because that way you can get even into a darker, uh, darker place uh, than I am. So thinking about that, I talk with some colleagues in the climate change area and think about how we could collaborate more and, you know, maybe a book along those lines. So I'm kicking around a bunch of ideas. Yeah. One, one of them is sort of a little bit more whimsical is, you know, the Rachel book vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. My wife and my daughter-in-law who teaches English at, at a college, both have been very interested in graphic novels. Could you, 
turn one the Rachel mm. book into a graphic novel, which I think would be really cool. Yeah. Um, as, as well. But, you know, I don't have any experience with that. And I can't draw, I can't illustrate. So I'd have to find the right illustrator to want to do something like that. Like it'd still be very cathartic to explore. If you could condense down one idea and put it on a billboard for everyone to see, what would you want it to say? I would say, um, you know, when when I get the emails that say the the army of patriots is coming to hunt me down, you know, Mm -hmm. which I get a lot. Well, first of all, I say you don't need an army of patriots. It's just me and Anna, Rachel and the cat. Now, one or two patriots should be enough. But but seriously, I I say, you know, wait a minute, you know. Um, you know, my dad fought in World War II and Okinawa and Saipan and Philippines and and the Navy. And, you know, he was proud of the fact that I became a scientist. My dad was a patriot. I that's what a real patriot is. But I also think the scientists are patriots. I see this is a nation built on the greatness of our research universities and institutions like Baylor University and, and Baylor College of Medicine and, and Texas Children's Hospital. So the scientists are the patriots, not these chuckleheads who think, you know, who want to undermine science. And and so I, I'm trying to really stress that point as well. You know, you know, we're the, the scientists are, are, are the are patriots, too. And mm. and getting that point across, I think, is really important. Yeah, well. Dr. Peter Hotez is the university professor of biology at Baylor University and also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. He joins us from his office in Houston. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much. Thank you so much.